0: Hello, Connor.
1: Hey, how's it going, man?
0: Uh, it's been an interesting day. An interesting day. How's your uh, weekend been?
1: Uh, it's been good. It's been rainy. It's been. Uh, we've had historic flood stages all up and down the valley.
0: Mm. What, what makes them historic specifically?
1: Uh, I think that the water level is higher than it's been since, uh, I think we had the remnants of Hurricane Ivan back in 2010, okay. maybe 2004. There was a really big flood in the 1930s that has... Um, a lot of historic photography and uh, sort of uh, like the ice cream parlor where the person had to escape by going out the little window right above the door uh, because they had to swim through because the water was all the way up. That was our that was our historic old-timey flood.
0: Very good. Very good. So not quite swimming through the little tiny door yet.
1: No, no, not yet. But the dehumidifier in the basement is, uh, is on and it, it will not go off.
0: Very good. Historically, living in the part of the world that I live in currently, you had to run dehumidifiers all the time because it rained all the time. And I still maintain dehumidifiers, I mean, particularly in my podcasting room because of all the books and electronics. But actually, the humidity isn't that bad anymore in the Bay Area because obviously we've gone through this kind of drought thing. So, but
1: yeah, Pittsburgh is all about the the basement dehumidifier because yeah. the basements are um, often the Victorian basements are field
0: stone for the foundation, and so they're always just wet. Very good. Very good. So we have a wide variety of topics in front of us this evening, and I wanted to start with one that you kicked off because I think it's an interesting idea, and that is prototypical versus archetypical.
1: Yeah, so I was listening to uh, Model Rail Radio, Mm -hmm. and uh, many of the guests used the word prototypical uh, in a way that I could tell that it was a technical term, uh, Mm -hmm. but I couldn't quite tell... What precisely they meant but everyone who was on that show and you uh know what it means so So uh, enlighten us
0: explain prototype versus archetype because i think what's interesting here is well let's talk about prototype first prototype typically means that you are modeling something very specific you're modeling a place a time a particular railroad line maybe down to actually making sure that the numbers on the side of the trains and maybe even the boxcars are represented by actual physical trains and boxcars. And with regards to layout specifically, what you're looking for is points of interest that actually are on the prototype, the actual railway that people are modelling, the actual railroad that people are modelling.
1: So, so in know, this case prototype it means the, the, the prototype is real life and this yes. model is in imitation of stuff that actually
0: would have been there in real life in that place. Certainly. And it can have you can use selective compression, so I mean it doesn't have to be everything to scale, but it's just to get a sense of when people model, they're modeling after a specific Thing And in contrast to this, there's freelance where you just create your own railroad and your own line. And and there's combinations of the two where you selectively take elements or you have what-if scenarios or...
1: Oh, there's alternate history model railroad. Yeah.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. So, for example, uh, I have a friend in Florida called Jim Gore. And he models what would have happened in Santa Fe, New Mexico, if a line had connected that wasn't actually there. And there are a variety of folk that model potential things that had never actually happened. Now, there's also, we've talked about steampunk, perhaps, maybe occasionally associated with mechs and these kind of things. So there are various creative freedoms which move into what I would call... Um, apocalyptic railroads or futuristic railroads, but that's a, that's an extreme. Most of the time, people are modeling with locomotives that have some connection to something and they'll create their own line or they'll stick to a prototype. And it's interesting that model railroading is very, so the prototype model railroader is a very particular kind of person and they can get to complete extremes. For example, people that model a single day in 1952 and they know exactly what was running on that particular day and they know uh, the roster in terms of rolling stock and maybe they know the passenger trains and sometimes they'll even get the passenger train documentation from that particular day so you know you can take it to an extreme we've had a few participants in model rail radio that have the same day, but in 1952, 1953, 1954, 1955, 1956. And they'll even do things like change road signs and they'll put up, you know, election posters. They'll modify it. In fact, there's a fellow called Rafter Blazy who I was supposed to meet when I went to Pennsylvania and he does exactly that. He models a decade on one particular line and every time they have an operating session, which is when people come to run trains at the guy's place, he will move forward a year and people will see the transition in the locomotives. They'll see the transition in the colors, the rolling stock, this kind of stuff. But because it's the same day of the year, the foliage is the same. You know, if there's patches of snow, that's the same, but it's just a year. If there's kids
1: in the park with balloons,
0: they'll still have balloons. Exactly. Yeah. So that's, Prototype model writing, but the idea of the archetype I think is fascinating because oftentimes in a variety of hobbies, military modeling, for example, miniatures, historic miniatures, but also, I mean, the space marine is an interesting archetype, but you know, when people do different kinds of modeling, they tend to be doing more archetype modeling than they're doing prototype modeling. And the distinction here is it's difficult to think. I mean, I guess you can have archetypical animals, but My view with regards to archetypes is that they usually relate to – there's an anthropomorphic part of it. They have to be human-ish in form, and they take a particular form which is the archetype. It's hard to – which is the pinnacle of all possible things within that space. So when you do – Yeah, I tend to think of
1: that word – I think of it as being the same word as platonic ideal. Yes, Um, So sort of the shining, celestial, perfect version of that thing. Yes. There's an element to model railroading that is about nostalgia because a lot of the, a lot of the models are of times that don't exist anymore, Mm -hmm. towns that don't, that aren't oriented economically the way that they were Mm -hmm. when there was a passenger train coming through Mm -hmm. 10 times a day. And so I, I I wonder, it's, it's interesting the times that I've, I've gone and seen, uh, layouts, uh, that are specific, that are in the past uh, that are modeling times that are earlier than when I was alive. I always look at them as archetypal. Mm. I I look at them as, as the parts of that time period that it was worth taking the time to model Mm -hmm. um, for the person who was doing the modeling. Even if for that particular layout, it's a completely prototypical layout as a person who just wasn't alive then and doesn't know what the prototype looks like. I always look at those things and sort of see authorial intent.
0: So it's interesting because when you look at, I mean, for example, there's a very famous layout in Peabody, Massachusetts, called the Franklin and South Manchester. That is not a prototype layout. That is an archetype layout. And it's an archetype layout of the Great Depression. It's the deterioration, I think it's modeled 1932. So what you're looking at is after three years of no money coming in a lot of transitory like homeless and just general disheveled buildings it's interesting when you use the term archetype in that context because that is very much an archetypical layout and it is very much associated not with the best of possible things but actually it's it's not it's beyond grungy it's Not even photorealism, it's filthy and it's intentionally filthy and it's done to provide strong contrasts, but almost a kind of muted dark contrast as well. Very interesting layout, but again, not the archetype as the pinnacle, but the archetype as the embodiment of the character of the Great Depression. And that is a layout that is very famous. The gentleman who runs it is quite curious. He also sells box of sticks kits, so to speak. He's wooden kits for various other bits and pieces. But the Franklin South Manchester is probably the most photographed layout in existence. It's covered, you know, I think there have been at least 16 articles of Model Railroad. Uh, my friend Dave Freire, who's on the front of the Model Rail Radio site, doing the so- Superman pose with the Model Rail Radio t-shirt, He knows the gentleman quite a bit and has written a book on the Franklin South Manchester and goes back, I think, every five years to photograph it as the layout changes. So sometimes it's not just beauty and pinnacles of engineering and this kind of stuff. Sometimes it's kind of grungy funk. And what interests me in particular, having done my road trip, is that there are people that are prototype modelers now that are looking to model the 70s and 80s. And they need things like, um, trailer parks and as you talked about container crates and all this, you know, all this other stuff that is just part of the detritus of industry that I think a, a prototypical modeler will want to do. But what interests me about the archetypical modeler, and it's an interesting contrast because no one ever describes the archetypical modeler, but there are countless stills and you know, just general moonshining or illegal behaviour outfits that you get when you model the Virginias, for example. And I have a friend in the DC area who models the Virginias in O scale, which is the Lionel train scale for folks that are interested, but it doesn't just apply to Lionel trains. It's just a description of the size of the trains. And he's got, you know, moonshining stills and various other things. And in that setting, while he has a prototype that he's modelling he's picking vignettes to create, as you say, archetypical interest. And certainly when you look at the larger scales, O scale, there's a narrow gauge scale, which just means it represents logging railroads or railroads where the rails are closer together, uh and 30. And that scale lends itself to, you know, bears and eagles and a wide variety of things that just required on model railroads as well. So I think even within relatively strict prototypes there's an artistic license and you're right it is actually trying to create a, a pinnacle but i think the nature of model railroading is it's an obsessive hobby that people are just drawn to levels of detail and creating a rich environment a simulation that's what i like to think of it personally and yeah in that light people will put all kinds of crazy stuff just to you know give it a familiar sense i guess
1: uh, absolutely i'm thinking now of uh Earlier in the week, I took a drive. Uh, my friend is learning how to ride his motorcycle. Uh, and So he's purchasing – he's trading up to uh, motorcycles that have a greater and greater capacity in terms of distance and speed and handling uh, as he gets better and better at riding. Uh, so he's also going on longer voyages. So we took um, – me and him drove out. I was in my pickup truck, and he was in his motorcycle – or on his motorcycle. Drove all the way – up the Monongahilo Valley all the way to the West Virginia border. And we went down one side of the river going down and then up the other side of the river coming back. And so we paralleled train tracks going all the way down that valley. And we passed a lot of landscape, a lot of which was em- empty. And so I'm just thinking about the amount of editing that one would have to do if, if you were going to make a Monongahilo Valley train scene, yeah. uh, because there is a lot of sort of scrubland and forest, but there's also a lot of factories that don't exist anymore, mm-hmm. but there was no reason to tear out the foundation of this giant factory, and so there's just this this part of the forest that has a concrete floor, and that's right against the train line, because that train line used to service that factory, but the, the CSX outlasted, uh, you know, textile corp or whoever.
0: So, yeah. I think typically... If you're modelling that area, I mean, obviously, Pennsylvania is a rail mecca. I mean, basically, Pennsylvania through to New England. But in Pennsylvania, in particular, the scales of the industries require people to model long stretches of open space. I mean, this is where the stills and other things go in. Part of model railroading is actually modelling big scenery. Now, if you have a smaller space, you're probably not going to model big scenery. But if you have a reasonable space, a basement or something like that, you're going to take time and space to model these aspects. And the beauty of these space parts of model railroads is that they allow, if you have friends coming over to operate trains, you can send the trains on and it'll take a few minutes for the train to arrive in the next town. So the open space and the scenery aspect of model railroading is is just as much part of the hobby as the industries and the trains. And I think...
1: But, oh, because if the stations were too close together, you wouldn't actually have a chance to sort of enjoy the, exactly. like, seeing the train come out. Yeah, exactly. That's cool. That's, but that's a need neat... you need time.
0: It's a time thing as well. You need to have the train disappear for a minute or two before it arrives at the next station. So what you see sometimes in old layouts, they would have what was called spaghetti, but they'd have, you know, track that doubled back. I mean, the beautiful thing is you've got things like the Cohen Pass and things like that here, where you do have trains that are looping. They have to loop around in order to get grade. So, yeah, the, the part of the hobby associated with modeling large-scale scenery is really very important, and I think it's just as much of the hobby as, you know, like I say, industries, locomotives, what have you. So when people have space, they tend to utilize it.
1: Yeah, and I, I'm thinking right now of, of uh, at the Carnegie Science Center downtown, which is our our uh, science museum, There's uh, it's also where – the biggest train layout is there's on the second floor it takes up sort of a whole permanent room and it's Pennsylvania in four seasons western Pennsylvania in four seasons. and thinking about it, sort of closing my eyes and imagining it in my head, the only thing I see is the scenery because mm. the four seasons have completely different scenery and they really go fall is is all oranges and reds and and yellows winter is is winter it's black and white and gray and nothing else and there's no color uh except the train spring and summer are green yeah thinking about it in my head uh i don't even it's hard for me to picture the specific buildings it's easy for me to picture just how much landscape there is that got modeled
0: so i think yeah that's a really accurate assessment and it's one of the interesting things i mean When I... I've only been to a couple of nationals, and I've only done one major layout tour. But the layout tour I did was in the Detroit area, which was very interesting. You'd go into these Detroit houses that all basically were built with the same footprint, because they were all, you know, engineers or, you know, machine workers' houses built in the 1950s. So all the basements were roughly the same size. But within the basements, the layouts that captivated me the most had... Pillar like islands that came out and were all just extended scenery with towns kind of dotted in between the various, I don't know one will call them like island like, you know, traversing outcrops that they used to actually create this space. So there's a long history in model railroading of actually needing distance between the various things. And it also enables you to run longer trains. I mean, one of the interesting things about these layouts, there's a gentleman here called. Um, uh, his surname is Park. I can't think of his first name. He has a huge layout. And again, he's modeling Pennsylvania steel, but he has, I don't know. It, it feels like <laughs> in terms of scale miles, he's got a number of kind of scale mile areas with just long trains of ore cars that just kind of stretch. And then you've got the coal cars and then you've got all the other things that are required in a steel plant. And he, maintains very very and one of the things with the locomotives is that and this is prototypical as well you'll sometimes get two or three locomotives coupling together in order to run these cars up through mountains mm-hmm. or like four
1: oh yeah, um, yeah my yeah so the the room i'm in right now is my my office um in my house and it looks out on the valley and there's actually there's two train lines that i can see distinctly the ones that are the furthest way on the far side of the valley uh and there's a an old Baltimore and, uh, B and O rail siding yard that's most of the neighborhood. But yeah, so I, I often see, uh, container trains that have, uh, a hundred well cars, each of which have two containers, except some of them have one. Uh, but you know, a hundred cars, so 200 containers, and there's three or four locomotives at the front that are pulling the whole thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Such is American industry. Such is American, yeah. American industry.
1: Yeah, well, and it's it's crazy, too, because I think those are just going to – there's a sort of container port a couple towns down in a town called Wall, Pennsylvania, named for the large wall they had to build to make space to build houses <laughs> uh, when they sort of demo demolished the hillside. But it's a – they unload the containers into a yard, and then those containers get onto trucks um, or get put onto chassis, and then trucks take them away. And I think that that – Like those container trains, I see two or three of them a day, and and I think they're just servicing that one. They might be going all the way through, but at least some of them are getting unloaded here. Certainly,
0: certainly. So I think we've pretty well tackled the prototype versus archetype. Is there anything else you want to rest with on this topic, or should we move on to another topic?
1: Oh, my God, no, we're 21 minutes in. Yeah, I think we did it justice.
0: Very good, very good. So last weekend, I went up to San Francisco. And one of the things that I've started to discover through recent weeks, which is changing some of my perspective associated with podcasting is I've started to listen to audiobooks. Now it's been a long time coming for me. I'm a bit of a slow learner. I was also slow to Netflix as my wife will regularly point out to anyone who will listen. So audiobooks for me, I, I used to like reading. I still like reading, running my eyes across a page, but there was one particular book that I wanted to read, but I couldn't, I knew I couldn't read it if I was Given it in book form. And that was called Days of Rage, which is associated with a period of time in American history, which isn't very well covered currently. Cause we've got new terrorists and what have you, but it's associated with the 1970s and early 1980s kind of terrorist movements. The Weatherman, obviously being the most famous of this group, but there were. That was
1: kind of the airplane hijacking uh,
0: time in right? Europe. It's interesting actually because the CIA did a deal with the. PLO not to do any american airplane hijacking so yes in europe hijackings are plenty but in the u.s it was mainly bombings bombings all throughout the u.s predominantly actually in the on the coast new york and san francisco and berkeley and these areas but just a lot of different predominantly leftist terrorist groups that existed within the u.s and operated in a very curious way, and I read the, or I had it read to me, Days of Rage, and what came through that was I wrote a role-playing game called Field, well, I wrote a, a novella called Field of Chaos, but I wrote a role-playing game based on the novella, which I've never actually released, but i play-tested with friends periodically. And it's a curious role-playing game because it's basically it's set in the early 90s It's got some cyber mysticism, a bit of cyberpunk in there as well. It's a thing in and of itself. But one of the things that interested me was I based a lot of the scenarios from the role-playing game on a book called The Mini Manual of the Urban Guerrilla, which was written by a guy called Mary Geller from Want of a Bed. He's a South American fellow. It explains, you know, gangs, of these, these terrorist gangs basically, would rob banks and do a variety of things, which they did in Europe as well. It wasn't just in the US. But anyway, I was reading this book and just getting a sense of this strange kind of political history. And most of it is actually, I mean, parts of it occurred in the Bay Area, certainly when the weathermen went underground. They lived in houseboats. Just as you go into Marin County, there's a suite of houseboats and they lived there. They lived very much in the open. They lived in Berkeley and a variety of other places. So... One of the things that interested me was actually that they published magazines and periodicals while they were hey, terrorist groups. It's very strange. But I found myself at a bookstore in San Francisco actually buying some of these periodicals uh, last weekend as a means of just, I don't know, getting a sense of the original writing of these people while they were on the run and all this other kind of stuff. This yeah I,
1: I just bought my own 1970s book for that very reason which was um this book about Arco Santi mm-hmm. the Italian uh, it was an Italian architect but it was a utopian piece of architecture that got built I think in Arizona and this is the the totally insane essays about why he wanted to build it this way and it's it's hand-published from the 70s and like the original source and i just i thought like i I don't know that this is on the internet and it needs to be preserved
0: Mm. yeah that is certainly the feeling that i have with regards to this stuff it has a particular well even getting to this bookstore was rather curious because it was a what bookstore bookstore was it it's called Bellarium books which is a book there were very few i used to in the late 90s when i would go to san francisco periodically I would go there typically with half a suitcase with the view that the other half of the suitcase would be filled with books and records that I would bring back to Australia with me. Most of the bookstores and the record stores I used to go to no longer exist. And San Francisco, even in the past three to five years while I've been going back, periodically has become more and more sterile. So, Balerium, that was
1: a experience yeah. i had in austin right i kept yeah. thinking
0: while i was there where's the weird
1: right yeah. like keep austin weird like where's the weird you're selling us weird but like yes. i can't
0: where's the weird it's gone it's gone yes so ballerium is a trip it's like something that my father would know back in his you know days when he hung out with union leaders and stuff in australia and you know they had police raids and things like that i mean it's run by a guy who looks like a cross between Karl Marx and Santa Claus. It's right in... You've got a buzzer in. You're in this run-down, predominantly Latino neighbourhood. You've got a buzzer into this thing, go to a third floor, go up, you know, the stairs, go to the back of the building, and there's Ballerian Books. And he does almost all his stuff online. So he's taking photographs of books. And the whole place is... I mean, it is laid out like a bookstore, but it's laid out like a very messy... In flux bookstore where there's a lot of like crazy stuff going on i also have historically liked underground and psychedelic comics and they're impossible to find these days and he had a small selection of that stuff as well so yeah it was an interesting experience to go there and, and hold these things i now have half a dozen of these things including how to make you know, wristwatch-based explosives and this kind of stuff with, like, line art drawings that's been photocopied seven times. I mean, I guess I'm trying to get on some FBI list somehow. But the thing about these books is that they have a smell, they have a quality in terms of the paperwork, and you can tell that they've been, you know, photocopied hurriedly and then just run out, basically. So I have a small collection of these things, and I don't know if it adds it to anything, but It reminds me very much of role-playing. I mean, the manual of the Urban Guerrilla is a role-playing text fundamentally, except it's just explaining in elaborate detail how these organisations and guerrilla groups operated through the 1970s, in particular the notion that, you know, everything was up for grabs. And it's a very strange period of time because it's impossible to understand coherently what was going through these people's heads in the context of, you know, where we are now. Because basically every aspect of what they did is so alien to the modern you know, the modern existence. But yeah, it's interesting having these artifacts. I have a series of hippie artifacts as well, which are more traditional hippie artifacts. These are probably post that in some very real sense. But my friend Bruce Damon has a third of Timothy Leary's library, which are literally Timothy Leary's books. He's got his hand, you know, underlining various bits and pieces. I went through that maybe about four or five years ago and made purchases through ABE books, which is the way that I discovered Bellerium, which does on it's like basically Amazon for second hand books online. And bought a few of the books that I'd seen in Timothy Leary's collection, which were interesting, some of which I've given away. But increasingly I'm trying to reduce my book footprint and I'm looking here at my miniatures and various other things. Uh slowly but surely there's a reduction taking place. I mean they Period. I've got a friend coming and staying from Australia when we get back from Australia, funnily enough, as these things are. And uh, I'm trying to change my podcasting room to be a epicenter for wargaming, which means I'm packing everything, like all my records and my record player and mixer, into flight cases, packing them away and then bringing out the miniatures to fill the space. So, lots of photo oh, cool. opportunities.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think my book collection has been... Um, It's been growing recently and it's been growing because I've been repurchasing books that I realized I had in my childhood. Mm. Uh, So the one I have right here actually is um, City by David McCulley, Mm -hmm. uh, which is this eight and a half by 11 uh, black and white illustrated tome that is a a story of Roman planning and construction Mm. uh, from 1974, uh, which most people – associate with the pbs series that got made about it in the 90s and then that one was successful enough that they made one for all of his other books but it's all pen and ink illustrations of how this one roman town got constructed from the priest cutting open the animals on the bare and empty land and saying yeah these guys seem healthy enough we could build a city here to like how they did sight lines in pre-Jesus era, how to build a leveling table uh for your surveyors to look across to make sure that all the heights were the same, uh all the way up to when the town's finished 130 years later.
0: It's just amazing to think about the Romans. And I know you have a you have a kind of classical bent I mean, particularly associated with mythology and these kind of things as well. One of the things that I found when I met you on location it's relatively rare for people to be obsessive about you know, classical mythology, but you certainly had a number of those boxes ticked. And I, think- I had uh, mm-hmm. some, some William
1: Blake-illustrated classical mythology books growing up with these big lithographs of crazy, nearly psychedelic Blake watercolors of what these gods and goddesses looked like as they were torturing each other. It really it went deep.
0: <laughs> I think the thing about the Romans which I find truly fascinating, is that they were the first civilization to really... Well, that's not necessarily true. I mean, the Egyptians did as well. But the the notion that there were lions in England, that there were African people, people from Africa, that were in England at that time, that the Romans were the first civilization really to do not just trade but actual migration of different groups of people in a way that was semi-organized and also very well-defined on skill sets and these kind of things. It's fascinating to think about how much civilization actually goes back to the Romans, like, you know, running water and basic sewage and all this kind of stuff. I mean, the Romans had so much of this covered so they could actually build a civilization. And also, particularly when you look at the kinds of roads and these kind of things that were constructed – very long, very straight roads, basically.
1: <laughs> well, and, and roads that were, uh, you know, that, that are still in evidence today, roads Certainly. that were that were built to last just forever. It's interesting to look at that that infrastructure, you know, these aqueducts that are still standing, the Colosseum, which has, uh, you know, seen a billion people be born and die next to it over mm. the course of the last uh, 2,000 years, you know, because Athens is a big town. And the population does have turnover. Uh, I don't know if that math is right, but anyway, the point though is that you know they built to last and it's still here and and we've only our, our our zoning codes have only gone downhill from there you know
0: in terms of standardization in terms of making sure that everything was to a certain specification, I don't know it's it's it seems to me to be like some extreme form of bureaucracy, but at the same point, I really respect the notion that you could get olives from, you know, Italy to Newcastle. No, Newcastle wasn't there then. Maybe London. Let's say London. That strikes me as pretty good for a civilization at any time, given the fact that moving anything that is perishable for any great distance is still relatively problematic. So, yeah, it's... I don't know. I think there's not enough... One of the reasons I did philosophy when I went to university was so I could read classical texts, and I'd actually have to. Like, I'd have to devote my time to reading, you know, Plato and Aristotle and these kind of folk, and also the scholastics, but really more the kind of classical uh, philosophers, and just thinking about how well-rounded and well-reasoned they were in just general, broad thinking terms. So, yeah. We share some of this in common, Connor, in terms of our general interest. Also, a love of line art. What's not to love?
1: Yeah, certainly. Yeah, I'm just thinking about, I mean, I think that that was definitely my parents' attitude. As as me and my younger sister were approaching college age, was was that college was for rounding, not for maximizing a particular path. Like the point of college was to have self-directed learning for four years uh and I guess sort of like enter into an adulthood in a, a more gentle way than working at a diner. But that's not people's experience. That certainly wasn't my classmates experience in like the 2000s when I was in college. But certainly now I think everyone going to college is doing the math for sure on the debt to future earnings potential for the degree. You know, that wasn't a part of my calculus at all. And I think it really affected just the amount of weird random stuff I decided I wanted to learn.
0: Yeah, I went to university with the view that I was going to leave university and write software. I mean, I've always, well, certainly through the period of time where even leading up to university, I'd go into the university to program. So for me, I always knew what I was going to do. And as you say, I picked, I mean, I did physics and I did philosophy. I did a lot of mathematics as well in order to do the physics. But these were my two primary majors. And, yeah, I always knew that I wasn't going to do either of them professionally. So I had a, I could actually. I which uh,
1: which set of tools do you think has served you better over time,
0: the the physics or the philosophy? Mm, I don't do as much mathematics as I really should. And Well, actually, that's not true. I do a lot of predictive mathematics and a lot of statistics and a lot of analysis through my professional life. But in general, philosophy enables you to have an ability to argue even fallacious stuff to the point of positive contention. So I wish I could do more physics in my general day-to-day life. That's part of Noble 8. There's a lot of undercurrents in Noble 8 that's really more physics than it is philosophy, so I continue to do that in some regard. But, yeah, I don't know. I think both of them were worthy I certainly find I think more about the philosophy particularly associated with I don't know a variety I mean I had to take every philosophy unit that they were offering so I did aesthetics I did a wide variety of continental philosophy I did a wide variety of kind of moral philosophy all the dry applied philosophy logic all this kind of stuff I mean I really took an obscene number to the point where even the academics I was, you know, going to courses with couldn't believe that I was taking the breadth of courses that I was taking. So it forced me to do a lot of reading, and it forced me to do quite a bit of thinking. But when I left university, to be perfectly honest, the first few years was all about survival, and I was a migrant basically. So that school- was my
1: experience as well. Yeah, I took as many classes as I could about cities, uh, which meant that I took. Uh, history class about the history of disasters in American history, uh, which it turns out that disasters only happen to places that have a population, which means that disasters are a totally urban phenomenon. Mm -hmm. um, Because, you know, when there's the largest earthquake ever recorded and it knocks over a bunch of trees north of the Arctic Circle in Alaska, it's not a disaster. It's just an event. So I took classes all over the place, which meant that my first couple jobs out of school were uh working at Starbucks 20 hours a week uh moving to Los Angeles and becoming an after school tutor for a year and then becoming the chauffeur for an old Jewish lady you and Larry so, David amazing was she blind she was not but she uh she had been in a big car accident and so she was very slow and um like it took a while to get everything done But that was okay, because I was getting paid by the hour, and she was a great person to talk to, and she, uh, I don't know, when you're in your 20s, having like an 84-year-old telling you what life is really about is uh, pretty helpful.
0: Mm. I've had similar experiences in terms of just trying to maximize my educational time with the elderly. Let's move on to a topic here, which I wanted to discuss, because I don't eat fried fish anymore, sadly. I'm going to when I'm in Australia, but you put down... touring lenten fish fries
1: yes this is uh this is this is a a proud pittsburgh tradition and uh we are a couple weeks into lent and it is happening i'm going every friday uh and Mm -hmm. i went on ash wednesday too uh yeah so there's um hundreds of churches in the area and they all have fish fries uh I've been, I've worked with Code for Pittsburgh, which is the local Code for America, um, sort of volunteer brigade of, of people who are technologists who want to do civic good. Uh, and, um, one of the, one of the, uh, projects that Code for Pittsburgh's done the last couple of years has been making the, the fish fry map, uh, that is the, uh, it lists as many fish fries as it can. Uh, it gives driving directions to them. I think it gives driving directions. But it shows where all the fish fries are, it shows whether or not they have homemade pierogies, uh, all of that. Uh and then keeping it updated every year with, with the hours and, and which which days in Lent they're open and all of that. Yeah, and so I have to go to them because I've been, you know, doing all the data entry for them for a couple of years and Everybody goes to them. It's not a religious thing at all. I mean, a lot of everybody who's Catholic, of course, goes to them. But a lot of them are hosted by volunteer fire departments. A lot of them are hosted by neighborhood associations. A lot of them are businesses that have a fish special. Uh, and so it's it's one of these awesome pieces of the year where everyone in Pittsburgh has a really good excuse to just strike up a conversation with the next person in line. This is the kind of event that we can all come out to uh, because who doesn't like fish?
0: Is it cod predominantly, or is it... I mean, there's no local inland saltwater fish, right? Or is there? Is it Lake Erie? do the lakes provide fish? Where, where do they get the fish from?
1: No. Um, so uh, the only fish that's native to Pittsburgh is the Monongahela whitefish, which is a terrible joke for the condoms that float down the river. Mm-hmm. Um, though recently, the Monongahela whitefish is is the fracking uh, distillate that is being poured into the rivers. Which, if you take a blowtorch, the plastic, uh, the hydrocarbons will actually plasticize, which is some terrifying YouTube videos. Yeah, so the cod is almost always frozen cod. It's always deep fried. Never get the baked fish. Always get the, the, um, the deep fried, the fried fish for sure. Mm. Yeah. The, the important parts are, are the side dishes. It's, it's the halushki, which is cabbage and egg noodles in olive oil and butter, uh, and bacon. If they do it right, they throw bacon into the halushki pierogies, which are a Polish kind of like an empanada full of potato and cheese, and maybe onion. Kielbasa, which is sausage. Uh, what else? Macaroni and cheese, which is usually really salty and totally flavorless, but it doesn't matter because it's macaroni and cheese. What else? Everybody sells rolls, which is a little weird. Just mm. like, here's a roll.
0: Yes. Interesting. Interesting. You asked if I had anything similar in terms of any stories or local traditions I don't particularly remember Ramadan in Malaysia. I was in Malaysia, I think, once for Ramadan. And what I remember is that you couldn't eat... You could eat food in public, but people would hurl abuse at you if you did. So, because they're fasting, you can't... Well, I mean, they're starving hungry, basically. So, good luck eating an ice cream in that kind of environment. You might get mobbed. In general... I, I mean, I live in a predominantly Catholic area, but it is night and day. And I don't think they would have any traditions. I mean, even the local businesses don't (laughs) like frown if, uh, you know, if you come in. And it's very interesting. The distinctions actually about, you know, regional food and religious traditions. I'm starting to think of the internet. And here I'm not being, you know, I'm not talking about Facebook or Twitter. Here I'm talking about the fact that. You know, my Saturday and Friday nights uh, spent looking at millions of people doing a variety of things to try and work out statistics. I feel like I'm married to the Internet in a very profound sense through my day job. The one thing I do like doing, which does relate to fish, is that I have uh, in the area in Mountain View, there's a sushi place that I like to go to and have their amakasi, which is a series of different pieces of fish prepared in very unique and curious ways so each piece of fish has a completely different flavor. It's not that I'm irreligious or even against religion in general, it's just that it doesn't it doesn't, you know, map onto my hermetic way of life. So the last time I went to a fish fry was when I had a catholic manager in Las Vegas. Uh it was very nice, but I don't really eat fried fish as a thing except when I go to Australia which I'll be in in the near future my mother lives next to a substantial fish shop that has amazing fish but the best fish in Australia is typically shark Uh, although barramundi is absolutely delicious and I think I'll probably have the barramundi this time but yeah in general although fish and chips were as a staple for me through my childhood and early adulthood in the UK here my wife doesn't particularly like fried fish and uh, we do eat sushi periodically but Yeah, nothing associated with religious traditions. I mean, even Thanksgiving and these kind of things, non-religious traditions. Unfortunately, the Internet is always on, and she is a a damn cruel mistress, unfortunately. So I don't have much to add.
1: I think I only really eat fried fish during Lent. I think there's, yeah, there's three times I eat fried fish during Lent. If I'm going to Needs Hotel, uh, which is a fish sandwich bar, in lawrenceville uh in the north part of the city which has famous fried fish sandwich it says right on the outside of the building famous fried fish sandwich you have to order the famous fried fish sandwich uh so of course i do and i can't remember the third one that's just gone but yeah like i think i only eat fried fish during lent and i think i think one of the nice things about pittsburgh is that The fried fish part isn't really particularly religious. I mean, like nobody really, usually the priest is there to kind of greet everybody, and he's aware of who's in the flock and who isn't. Yeah, if you can make it sort of into the old parish school cafeteria and withstand the fact that there's crosses on all the walls, $9 fish dinner is hard to beat. Yeah, well, and certainly I think actually the fish fries activate spaces that aren't normally active because there are... I mean, the the story of every Catholic church in Pittsburgh is that membership is down, the flock is dwindling, and that everyone's either moved to the suburbs or moved to Florida. A lot of the spaces where these fish fries happen, especially if they're happening in parish halls or in church basements uh, or in the social hall next to the church or across the street, uh, a lot of the story of those is that this is the only time during the
0: year where those halls are even open. Hmm. It is a pity that they're not used for community functions. I mean, I certainly recall church halls, I mean, particularly when I used to DJ, we would book church halls for practice spaces, we'd even book church halls for performances periodically. And yeah, it's, the whole notion of public space and access to public space is just such a big thing in cities, and particularly for anything, you know, youth-oriented, the ability to have public spaces that are available, hmm, anyway.
1: Yeah, we, we have a, Pittsburgh has a wide variety of, of, of former churches that got desanctified at one point or another and turned into businesses. There's a, there's a, a hookah bar in Oakland. There's a, um, a music venue up in Millvale, both of which used to be big churches. And now, like, there's no, <laughs> there's no crosses everywhere. There's just, a <laughs> just, um, apple
0: flavored smoke and really loud Middle Eastern music. Hmm. Speaking of loud noises, you have industrial noise exploration, down as a topic.
1: Oh, yeah. So I guess this is a couple weeks old because um so we didn't record last week. But I was doing some exploration of um, when I'm in my house, there are some industrial noises that I can hear, and I try to identify where they're actually coming from and what they're actually doing because um, because I want to know what's happening in my environment. And so the trains, I already kind of know... Where the level crossings are down the valley. And so I can kind of hear, is this coming southbound? Is this coming northbound? Um, and I know where they're going to do their horn blowings because I, I remember where those crossings are. Uh, but there was a, a loud sort of crashing boom, big sound about every four to seven minutes for maybe three hours at a time. And then it would be quiet for a while. And then I'd hear it again three hours later, you know, for another three hours. Uh, and I finally tracked it down. I was out on a walk on one of the old, um, there's a couple of train lines which have been converted into bicycle and pedestrian mm-hmm. paths uh, down the valley. So uh, I was walking along one of those and I heard the noise. And so I kept walking along the path and it got louder. And I finally came to a scrap yard and in the scrapyard there was a large building sized machine that you dump big pieces of scrap metal into the top of it. And I think there must be some kind of really, really strong alloy crushing machine that breaks that into sort of six inch pieces. And then there's a big rattling gangplank that comes out one side that kind of vibrates those pieces out and onto a big pile, which then they scrape up and take somewhere else. Uh And so this big breaking machine gets loaded up by a hopper that must weigh a couple thousand pounds. That's just this solid steel hopper. And the sound every four to seven minutes is they load the hopper. They kick the hopper up with these big hydraulics. They let the hopper down. The hydraulics don't kick in all the way. It just falls down and makes this huge noise And then seven minutes later, they've refilled the hopper, they've kicked it up again, and it's falling down again. I guess every batch takes a while to break apart uh, or to be crushed by the crushing machine. And so there's just these two workmen, who one who's operating the machine and one who's loading the hopper with this a uh, big claw arm with a magnet on the end that sucks up these big pieces of steel and then deposits them in the hopper uh and their whole job is just to like stare at these pieces of steel until they break apart and then add more of them and then hit the button that makes the super loud noise yeah so as soon as i realized that there were two people who were getting paid by the hour to also hear this noise every 4 to 7 minutes I was like, cool, explanation done, I can ignore this noise, I know what it is now, I'm happy that there's a steel-crushing machine within earshot of my house, have a good
0: day. Mm. The kind of noise that I have exposure to, I mean, particularly when I'm at home, we do have trains close by, so I hear trains, which I don't find particularly offensive. The ones after midnight, a little curious, but they're still there. We have planes flying overhead, but the main noise that I get a lot of is car alarms which actually permeated the early part of this recording and also periodically gunfire and these are sounds that uh, car alarms I can drown out uh, police helicopters as well but the gunfire is interesting and the gunfire I'm always more heightenedly aware of particularly when it's close and also the direction which it's coming from in general, the heavy industries in our area, there's a cement works close by, but there's nothing that would be crushing stuff. I do have a, a car repair. In fact, there are three car repair places that all kind of adjoin my property. They're typically drilling or grinding or doing this kind of stuff. But yeah, it's interesting in terms of industrial noise, I've thankfully slowly but surely been able to work on the neighborhood dog owners. So the dogs are no longer, you know, barking all through the night. But yeah, it's interesting because most of the industries around me are light industries that just do grinding. And actually the neighbor, one of the neighbors was dropping like metal pipes at about 9 a.m. yesterday, which was interesting. Just the constant dropping of pipes. So yeah, I do have certain kinds of noises around me, but usually. Uh, we find ways of drowning them out. And actually, even though our house is on a major street, the road noise isn't that problematic in the front of the house. There's slightly less sound shielding in parts of the back of the house. So if I ever sleeping in the guest room, which I do periodically if my wife's not feeling well or you know, for other reasons, I tend to hear the road noise considerably louder through the back of the house than I do through the front of the house. But yeah, nothing really similar to that i mean i guess you get a lot more heavy industry in your area and basically aside from the local cement place and the various car related things the next largest industry is the largest cannabis grow facility in california which is also on my street so that doesn't make a lot of noise surprisingly but maybe it should
1: <laughs> yeah the the neighborhood i live in Hazelwood, uh it um it used to be the site of the Jones and Laughlin works, which was one of the largest steel mills in the area. And then mm-hmm. that works shuttered in the mid eighties. And then the site was basically abandoned, uh, up until actually the present. So there's 140 acres of unbuilt land that's, you know, this four mile by quarter mile stretch that goes all the way down this one river that is not yet developed. That they've spent the last 10 years grading it so that it is ready for development and putting in all the sewer lines that they need to develop it. And so we we might be Amazon's HQ2 if Amazon chooses Pittsburgh, like this empty neighborhood-sized parcel of land that's 10 minutes from the downtown seems like it's going to be the spot. Um, so I don't know. We might have drone roosts there in a couple of years for all of the package delivery drones to mm. <laughs> fly all our stuff to us.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: but certainly I, I, I've never minded the amount of industry in Pittsburgh because, you know, I moved here in 2004 and I know that I live in the least polluted most good air quality, most sunshiniest, quietest Pittsburgh that has been around for 130 years. You know, mm. like this is, this is not what the city looks like when we're really, really building stuff. You know, this is, this is quiet.
0: Very good. Very good. I think with that Connor, we should call it an evening, call it a wrap. Sure. I think I've got one more recording in me before I depart for the Australian and New Zealand Odyssey. So we'll get that out next weekend, hopefully, and uh, look forward to chatting then, Connor. Have a good week. Yeah, have a good week. Talk to you soon. Take care.